Hello, Danny Fortson here. Uh, something special for you today as we're giving you an edition of the new daily podcast from the Times and Sunday Times. It's called Stories of Our Times, and it is presented by Manveen Rana and David Aronovich. Uh, it comes out every day and focuses on one story per episode, including this one, which features yours truly. I hope that you like it. And if you do, uh, be sure to subscribe and rate it. They're doing some amazing stuff on the pod. So you guys should definitely subscribe and check it out. Have a listen. Let us know what you think. Enjoy. Heaven knows we all want out of lockdown. Could Apple and Google be our saviors and help get us out? Here they are, these two trillion dollar companies saying, Give us a couple months and we'll turn every phone on the planet into a tracking device. In some countries, governments are tracking people's movements in a way that only months ago, in all but the most authoritarian, would have been unthinkable. But these are extraordinary times. And here too, we might well put our trust in Silicon Valley. What engineers do is build stuff. And they don't often stop to ask whether they should. If you're trying to put a genie back in the bottle, it would serve you well to think about how you create the genie in the first place. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, could the tech giants get us out of lockdown? And if we give up our privacy to help them, will we ever get it back? C19. Um, I open up the app and the first thing it asks me is if I've been tested for COVID-19 and I haven't, so I put no. And then it says, tell us how you're feeling today, even if you're feeling fine. It's another average morning in coronavirus Britain and like 2.5 million other people, I'm opening the King's College London COVID symptom tracker app on my phone. I don't just answer for me, I've also entered the details for my wife Sarah with her permission I've asked her how she's feeling like me she's feeling well so I enter both of those so that's gone into the information they know where I am they could look to see if my circumstances change if I don't feel well and how I don't feel well what that says possibly about the spread of the virus or how the virus affects people. So I'm creating some really useful information by going on this thing here. But less than 4% of us are currently taking part. And we're going to need data from many more people than that to have any hope of tracing the person-to-person spread of the virus. I must say, you actually look like your byline. Danny Fortson is the Sunday Times West Coast correspondent based in California. A lot of people, you know, you see their byline and you actually see them in person and be like, oh gosh, well they maybe should update that because it's probably been 25 (laughs) years. I cover all things Silicon Valley and tech for the paper. In other words, you're not the Hollywood guy. No, I am very much not the Hollywood guy. I'm everything but the Hollywood guy. Contact tracing is one of the hottest keywords in South Korea at the moment. It tracks the history, timeline and the locations visited of a coronavirus patient. If a user is diagnosed with COVID-19, health authorities can gain access to the app data to identify the people the user has had close contact with. 
Danny, take us to South Korea last month. A phone goes off as an alert. What do people see? So you get an alert on your phone and says, John Smith, who lives two doors down, he has contracted coronavirus. And you click on the link and there are his movements for the past week or two weeks. There's his credit card information. Maybe you just see that he spent a couple nights ago in a love motel, maybe. Sorry, Danny, what's a love motel? <laughs> a love motel is an establishment where you, one might go with an escort, perhaps a paid escort, and have a an interlude that maybe lasts a few hours. So, you know, they're, they're the kind of by-hour motels. Perhaps something you wouldn't want advertised to your neighbors. And so you have these kind of, yeah, they're kind of like flood warnings. They're messages that kind of get blasted out to everybody's phones who might have come in contact with this Mr. John Smith. So they all know, oh, he was at Starbucks this morning. He was at Sainsbury. Of course, I don't know if there's Sainsbury in Korea, but, you know, go with me here. He was at Sainsbury last night at 7.30 when he made his purchases. So you know, you may have been in contact with him. So you can then understand, well, okay, maybe I need to quarantine or self-isolate to protect myself or other people around me. When did you first hear about the idea that in countries like America and the UK, that our phones might be the route out of the lockdown? Well, so this has been in discussion since, you know, actually a couple months ago, because if you go back to the origin of the outbreak in China, a couple of the big, big tech companies there, Alibaba, Tencent, WeChat, they created these what they call contact tracing apps. And obviously, this is very, it was a very Chinese approach. This was not opt-in. Everybody had to download these onto their phones and everybody had to participate. And it was a way for them to try to get the outbreak under control very quickly. And as we saw that unfold, you started to hear murmurs like, okay, well, we might have to be doing something similar if, God forbid, this virus travels to the UK, to Europe, to to United States. And that's exactly what happened. As the virus broke out in various different countries, you have at least two dozen different contact tracing apps, either created by governments or private companies in conjunction with governments that have cropped up around the world. And there's going to be more of them. And the idea is that this might just be what the future looks like is that this is a new thing we're all just going to have to get used to. What are different countries doing with phone apps and digital contact tracing? Yeah, so Taiwan, you have your phone. It is assigned to a a nearby cell tower and say you are under quarantine. If you leave and another tower is pinged, indicating that you are further away from that, you know, you're closer to a new tower, you might get a call by the police within 15 minutes wow. saying, you need to go back home. And so if you think of it as an electronic fence around your building or however tight they want to make it, you cannot leave. And you even have officials calling twice a day to check that not only that you're in your house, but you have your phone on. And what's really interesting, Taiwan has been quite effective at keeping this under control. It's a country of 24 million people. They've had 400 cases. What about Singapore? So Singapore is a bit different. They have a contact tracing app, and it is opt-in. Only about a sixth of the population 
have downloaded it, which for a tool like this renders it effectively useless. Because really? unless you have the vast majority of people using this, the utility of it goes out the window because the whole point is to show where everybody's going and what they're doing, who they're coming into contact with, and who might be spreading the virus to whom. Presumably, an app like this only works if people know that somebody's had the virus, and you can only find that out by testing them. So the app can only presumably go together with a system of mass testing, which then feeds the information about your test status to your phone. Exactly. As much as we want to believe that tech can solve our problems, this is one tool of a suite of things that need to happen, the most important being testing. And if they haven't been tested, no one can possibly know. Exactly. Let's move on to the question of what Apple and Google are developing. So you've reported that Apple and Google are working together to find a way to do contact tracing, and even that it might be used by the NHS. Mm. What do we know about what they're doing? What they're developing is a contact tracing app or a capability that would be built in. They will push through an update to your phone that will include this new capability to have a contact tracing function within every Apple iPhone or Android phone, which accounts for something, you know, 90% plus of the phones around the world today. So in effect, turning every phone into a contact tracer. Wow. So one night you'd get a thing saying there's an update to be installed. You'll mm. install it. And when you install it, this capability will be installed with it. Yes. So what is it that they will be installing on our phones? This is a technology that uses Bluetooth proximity sensing. So say you and I were in the same room. We were sat across a table having lunch. After a certain number of minutes, say 10, 15 minutes, our two phones, unbeknownst to us, would talk to each other and say, okay, well, we've been in this close proximity for a certain amount of time. I am going to remember you and you are going to remember me in a kind of list of contacts. Five days later, you, David, you test positive. I will then get a ping saying you were in contact with this person. You should either self-isolate, you should get a test, whatever it may be. But I know in an automated way that I have been potentially exposed. Now, two questions about that. Firstly, how does it know that I've had the coronavirus? And second, how does it know you'll do something useful with the information? We don't know what exact form this NHS app will take. It's still being worked on. But say you, David, test positive, you would presumably upload that information or agree to have that information shared on the app. Now, what's important here is that the Apple Google technology and what privacy experts are hoping will be the system by the NHS will be encrypted. So rather than saying you, David, it'll be you number 25346892, whatever. You are assigned an encrypted number, which, you know, if I saw would mean nothing to me. So there's no central database with regard to the people who are being contacted because they have been in touch with people who've got it. But there is, of course, a central database about who's had the coronavirus. Yeah. Because otherwise you wouldn't have been able to generate the alert in the first place. 
Apple and Google, they want to keep all of this information, this list of people you've been in contact with, or which is really a list of numbers which represent people. They want to keep that housed on the phone. So it's not fed back to a central database that is held by the government or a private company. Because as the crisis passes, the question is, what do you do with this new surveillance system that you have created? Google, we make privacy a priority in everything we do. Your information can make our products work even better for you. You are in control of what you do. The truth is, we could make a ton of money if we monetized our customer. If our customer was our product, we've elected not to do that. Let's look at the people who effectively will be asked to develop this kind of thing. And we're talking mostly about organizations like Google because they're the people who have the capacity to do it, right? And they already do some of this. This is what's so interesting is that you have Apple and Google, you know, who are bitter rivals. And let's not forget that both of these companies in America are being investigated on monopoly claims. And here they are, these two trillion dollar companies saying, Give us a couple months and we'll turn every phone on the planet into a tracking device. So it really <laughs> exposes the, just the power that these companies have. When things hopefully get back to normal or start heading that way, it's not hard to imagine that the critics of these companies will say, well, look, this is what these companies can do. Of course, they're too powerful. They should be broken up, etc. So it's not without risk what they're doing here. So the upside for them is we helped you come through a terrible pandemic. And the downside is you showed us during the pandemic you've got too much power. Exactly. And who knows what's going on behind closed doors, right? I mean, there may be a quid pro quo here. A little wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Okay, we're going to do our part for the public good, for the world. How about you ease up on us when we come out at the other side of this and get the Attorney General off our back or, or the Justice Department? Or the European Commission. Or the or... European Commission or, you know, virtually every regulatory body, which up until two months ago was laser focused on Silicon Valley, the big tech guys and them having too much power. Tell me a bit more about the leadership of these two companies. The tech world feared this day was coming. The Steve Jobs era is over. So Apple is led by Tim Cook, who, of course, is a successor to Steve Jobs. Tim Cook, a brilliant insider, but as just about every analyst on the planet has pointed out before, he's no Steve Jobs. Privacy to us is a human right. It's a civil liberty. And in something that is unique to America. What's really interesting is he's been very canny amid what they, you know, what we refer to now as the tech lash, this big backlash against big tech, in that he has held Apple out as the guardian of privacy. We're not going to traffic in your personal life. This is like freedom of speech and freedom of the press and privacy is right up there for us. We are the anti-Google. We are the anti-Facebook. We do not mine your data. We are all about privacy. We want to protect your data. Now we have two suspects, both dressed in black. Of course, there was a, the San Bernardino terrorist shooting. Several down in the conference room, several down. Stay, several medical aid. 
14 dead, 22 injured, the worst terrorist attack in the U.S. since 9-11. Police say the suspects, 28-year-old Syed Rizwan Farouk and 27-year-old Tashfeen Malik, were shot dead in his black SUV at the end of a massive manhunt. And there was, on his iPhone, apparently, information that might have indicated who else might have been involved, some indication of the events leading up to the massacre. We have no more information about this phone. The only way to get information would be to write a piece of software as sort of the software equivalent of cancer. And Apple said no. They said no. We will not open this phone. Tim Cook is looking to do a big number, probably to show how liberal he is. What I think you ought to do is boycott Apple until such time as they give that security number. They said no. He is a private citizen. That is, You do not have the right to do that. We are not going to effectively open the lockbox, which we have created technologically, that protects this information. And they went to the courts to defend that right, to keep what's on your phone private. And amid this tech backlash... They have leaned into that. And it also helps, it must be said, that they are not an ad-based business like Google and Facebook. Google and Facebook get as much data as they can because it helps them sell more ads. Apple sells phones. They don't care about advertising. And how does this differ from Google? Who's, who's in charge of Google now? So Google is run by Sundar Pichai, who's been there for about 15, 16 years now. Today, for any service we provide our users... Uh, we go to great lengths to protect their privacy, and we give them transparency, choice, and control. He's kind of risen through the ranks. He is now runs the entire empire as of last year, and he answers to his shareholders. And the shareholders want to see growth. They want to see advertising growth. They want to see new business. And he's been trying to walk a line between continuing to grow but also not creeping people out about how much Google knows about you. Meet Google the noun that became a verb, the world's favourite search engine, the company whose motto is, don't be evil. What does don't be evil tell you to do under these circumstances of, let's say, informing the FBI of the things that the FBI wants to know, but that maybe the person (laughs) whose information doesn't want them to know? Well, there's two things to know about that. Their corporate motto is no longer don't be evil. They got rid of that quietly a couple years ago, and they've changed it to do the right thing which is equally kind of vague. And yeah. <laughs> I, so you can kind of read it, do the right thing for the bottom line. That would be the skeptic's um, interpretation of that. But it's, it's all a bit of a nonsense, really. So where does do the right thing take them here? So I think this is why it's helpful for them to do this with Apple, because Apple is seen as this guardian of privacy, And they are both unified in this idea of, okay, we are going to create something that can meet the public health goals without creating a vast surveillance tool that then tracks us on an individual basis for from now for the rest of time. I presume you've met these guys. Yeah. What's your impression? I mean, would you trust them? I would say that Google and the leadership at Google strikes me as more self-conscious of the creepiness of their business model than, say, perhaps Facebook. But also, I am continually surprised when they are surprised when their technology is used for something that they didn't intend it to, such as YouTube videos that are helped to radicalize people or things of that nature. 
you think there's a kind of deliberate naivety about them? There's definitely a naivety. And you can talk about whether it's deliberate or not. But what's really interesting living and working out here is that it's a very engineering-led culture. And what engineers do is build stuff. They like to make tools. And they don't often stop to ask whether they should. That's really interesting. It's led by the pleasure of the discovery and the development rather than what the development can do. Exactly. The important questions are asked later. There's a third company we should talk about, which people might not have heard of. This is Palantir. Mm. What have they got to do with this? So Palantir is a private company that provides high-tech, big data software to the Ministry of Defense, to the Pentagon, to the CIA, to the NSA. You go on down all the three-letter agencies, Palantir is there. The Pentagon has been looking for him, certainly. The U.S. has been looking for For him for years. They were involved with the assassination of Osama bin Laden. I can report to the American people and to the world. The United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden. It was far from certain, and it took many months to run this thread to ground. They were involved with the drone strike that killed Baghdadi. We are learning more information about the raid that took down ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. And they are the big data partner for the Pentagon on this contract called Maven, which helps guide these drones and set up the drone strikes. So they're really very much used to dealing with the enemies of the state. That is their meat and drink, correct. They have been working with the NHS, and they have said publicly that coronavirus is now their number one priority. It's the thing they're working on around the world. What that actually means is not clear, but they are deep within the corridors of power, both at Whitehall and Washington, D.C., and they are working on this around the clock. Okay. Uh, it be very interesting to have their gaze turned to us. Now, you talked about the Google and Apple people. Would you trust the Palantir people more or mm. less, or does the issue not arise? I mean, I'll, to be frank, I don't really trust any of them. <laughs> <laughs> because for me, the question is, you're building something that is extremely powerful. And if you think about something that can, even in the most privacy-friendly way, put together a patchwork quilt of location data and who I'm associating with and everything else, and all of a sudden you can get back to me as an individual, then how do I know that on a Saturday morning the police aren't banging down my door? So I think it's very easy to see how this gets very dystopian very quickly. The former MI5 director, Lord Jonathan Evans, he wrote a piece for the Sunday Times last week, and he said this technology, whatever you thought about what it would do, would involve, I'm quoting, a severe intrusion into the privacy of ordinary members of the public, which you might decide to do, but it would still be a severe intrusion. Is that your reading? Absolutely. Yes. And that's what I find so fascinating, is if you go back to a pre-coronavirus world, you had governments around the world who were obsessed with breaking up big tech and really worrying about them doing something exactly like what we're talking about now. And now we're saying, please help track us because it means I will be able to go out of my house 
and go see my friends and go see my family, that's really extraordinary. And the worry is what happens when the crisis passes? How do you get the stuff off the phone again? Well, indeed. Can you put the genie back in the bottle? Can you? Well, I think technologically you can, but I think there needs to be a lot of thought into how these are architected from the beginning. Because if you're trying to put a genie back in the bottle, it would serve you well to think about how you create the genie in the first place. Um, because if it's centralized, if it's on big servers that, that are owned by the government, it's going to be very hard to just simply say, you know, trust us, we're going to get rid of this when it's done. Okay, so what you're saying is, let's suppose we do this. Let's suppose it works to an extent during the pandemic. When the pandemic's over, Mm. we would need to make a big political, social effort to say, right, that was then, this is now, now we're going to take it off all the phones and we're going to get rid of that data. But the question is, will that day come? Because we don't know what course this pandemic will take. We might get it under control, but... There might be warnings, credible or otherwise, that say, okay, this is going to come back. So we're going to keep this whole system in place. Because if an argument can be made that this virus could come back or a variation of this virus could come back, we need to have this stuff up and ready so that when it strikes again, we're ready this time. That's a very persuasive argument. So you wonder if it's this is just going to be what it is. Yeah, you don't want to go, look, we know you want to get rid of the app, but you don't want to go back to that situation where we had to lock everything down. So let's just keep it for another long period. And- exactly. I mean, would you? I mean, uh, truly, I mean, we've been in California, we've been in lockdown for six weeks. I would like to go outside. I'd like to take a run. I'd like to go to a bar and see my friends. Am I willing to sacrifice some of my privacy or autonomy to be able to do that where i sit right now i would say yes you've been listening to stories of our times with me david aronovich and my guest danny fortson the producers were james shield and ben mitchell the executive producer is leo hornack and the deputy executive producer is poppy damon Sound design was by Carla Patella, music by Breakmaster Cylinder, with archive clips from ABC, CBS, CNN, MSNBC, All Things D and Arirang News. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe for free to get a new episode of Stories of Our Times every weekday morning. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and more. Do join us again soon.